You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Our podcast team is taking a break this week from the daily news. But don't fret. You can get your daily dose of cybersecurity news at our website, thecyberwire.com. In the meantime, we've got interviews for you this week, some interesting people we've talked to throughout the year. So stay with us. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Most people, when you think about hacking back, uh, they are referring to the digital equivalent of Batman. That's Jonathan Braverman. He's general counsel at Symmetria, a company that describes itself as providing deception-based cybersecurity solutions against advanced cyber threats. Our conversation centers on hacking back and Braverman's belief that today's legal framework for doing so is inadequate. 
they are referring to the digital equivalent of Batman. That's uh, identifying a criminal, chasing him down, and beating him down on the street. <laughs> and uh, that's a very narrow view of what hacking back actually is. Because if you take the time to consider uh, a lot of the things that you do uh, as part of incident response, uh, if you reframe the action or if you rethink it, it fits into the spectrum of hacking back. And I'll give you an example. If the attacker connects to my system and uh, his attacking tool has in plain text his username and his password, and I try to connect to that service, is that hacking back? Most people would say yes, and they would say uh, that it's illegal. Most people would be right in saying that that's illegal because you're gaining access to a system that's not yours, and you're essentially committing computer trespass. But it's something that absolutely every company that does incident response has done at some point or another in their history. Or what about engaging the attacker inside your system by replacing actual files with honeydocs or with files that are corrupted at the source so that when the attacker downloads them to his CNC server or to his drop zone, they are rendered inoperable or unreadable? Is that hacking back? It Hmm. really does depend on how you define uh, the engagement with your attacker So the way at least we at Symmetry look at it is that hacking back is essentially the forbidden part of incident response. So does that give the bad guys an unfair advantage? Definitely. One of the interesting things about computer law and cyber law is that it has a lot in common with uh, international uh, humanitarian law in that respect. And that is that the bad guys have weaponized the protections of the law. Because if you look at the provisions of uh, the Computer Fraud uh, and Abuse Act, for example, there's a lot of sense behind the prohibition on causing damage to a computer system, either knowingly or uh, through reckless action. It makes a lot of sense that if the attacker is using a hospital as a drop zone, I shouldn't be allowed to drop my own malware into that server. Nobody in their right mind is going to disagree with uh, a prohibition on that. But that does put the bad guys into a, into an advantageous position, quotation marks around advantageous, because they don't have to worry about uh, law enforcement. And when I, as a cybersecurity practitioner, have to fear the regulator more than I have to fear my attacker, that does bring into mind several questions. And uh, the most important of which is, is it not time to reform the law so that I can get back to actually defending myself? So so are you suggesting that it, uh, some policy uh, adjustments are, are needed? I think it would be most beneficial to rethink some of the limitations that are currently used, or at the very least to allow uh, the practitioners a more liberal interpretation of the existing laws. Now, again, I, I don't think I can stress enough the prohibition on causing damage intentionally is something that we can definitely get behind. We're not proposing that it's a good idea to plant your own kind of malware or your own kind of crypto locker uh, for an attacker to get into your systems because you never know what the consequences are going to be. But there needs to be some discussion as to whether or not the intent of my access to a computer has to matter for something. And if I go back to my original example, If the attacker has given me his credentials in clear text inside an attacking tool that he has used to connect to my network, it is simply illogical that I can't connect to a CNC server to perform triage on the kind of information that has been stolen or to find out what kind of damage he has caused to my organization because I'm afraid of computer trespass. If I'm afraid more of the Department of Justice interpretation than of uh, my attacker, I, I, I think policy needs to change. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the analogy I hear used quite often is that if you know my neighbor breaks into my house and and steals something from me, it's I can't just go back into their house and take it back. That I would be guilty of trespassing by going into their house. Uh, in many ways, it's an apt analogy, but in other ways, it's an inapt analogy. And I'd like to focus on why it's not necessarily an accurate comparison. Yeah. The first point that needs to be considered here is that if your neighbor breaks into your house and steals your television, your television is gone. If somebody attacks your system and copies your files, your files are, are still there. Hmm. So the kind of damage you're trying to prevent is different. You're trying to prevent the disclosure of information, not the theft of information, because you still have the original. So in that sense, I need to do triage to know what he's taken. In the physical world, I know my TV is missing. It's a different level on the kind of activity that I'm doing. First, I need to do triage so that I know if I have to do a breach notification to 143 possible million users like in Equifax, or if I can limit myself to 3 million users, which is huge in terms of what a company is supposed to do. And second of all, if I go into my neighbor's house and use violence against him, then yes, that's rightly forbidden, and that's exactly my point. I don't want to uh, do anything outside my system that causes damage to either an intermediary or to my neighbor. But the second part here is that if my neighbor uh, breaks into my house and steals my television or uh, my possessions, I can call the police, and the police are the people who are supposed to uh, use force to either arrest my neighbor and get me my things back or bring him to justice. And this is something that sadly is simply not feasible in terms of cybersecurity. First of all, because I don't know who broke into my house. I don't necessarily know who my attacker is. I have difficulty in attribution. And part of the actions that I need to do to better gain attribution or to gain better attribution more likely is that I need to look at where the files have been taken to and I need some forensic data at the CNC level or at the drop zone level, which I currently can't obtain So I can't even go to law enforcement and say who I suspect because I have no idea who to suspect. We're a bit in the Wild West these days when it comes to these things, where you have to uh, defend yourself, I suppose. Is this part of the case you're making? It's not that we're in a state of lawlessness, as most people think about the Wild West. It's more that we're in a situation where the law is simply uh, inapt to the situation, and it's not applicable to the daily challenges. My hands are tied in the fact that I don't know what my limitations are. And no cybersecurity practitioner wants to be the case that uh, is tried as in, okay, that's the limit. It's not that I'm afraid of breaking the law, it's that I don't know how to apply the existing legal uh, norms or regimes. Uh, Take, for example, the computer trespass. I don't know what access means in regards to the CFAA. And there's not sufficient jurisprudence to give me uh, sufficient comfort when I have to answer an engineer's question as to whether or not I've gained access to a computer if I plant a beaconing device that whenever a Word file or an Excel file is opened, it sends over the IP address, the operating system language and version, and the geolocation of where the file was opened. I don't know if I've gained access to a computer or not in that scenario. And if I've gained the access, then I've committed a felony. That doesn't make any technical sense. So what, what do you propose? In an ideal world, uh, what would the uh, scenario that we'd be operating under? In an ideal world, we'd have some kind of consideration into intent. Currently, the law is content neutral. So as I've said before, the bad guy has the advantage of being able to weaponize the law against me. If somebody connects a Raspberry Pi inside my network... I can disconnect that device physically, 
but I can't execute a program that disconnects it digitally because there's a specific prohibition in the CFAA that causes damage to the availability of the system. That kind of awkwardness needs to end. If I can protect my system and I can demonstrate I've been acting within the minimal damage possible and with the intent of defending my network, I should have some level of comfort or at least some level of certainty that I'm not going to be prosecuted for my actions. And if I'm not going to be able to gain that kind of confidence or if nobody's going to be willing to give me the assurance that I need that I can defend myself, then it's time for the government to step up and take responsibility. But the situation in which the government blunts all responsibility to the private sector but doesn't give any tools for self-defense is an anomaly that's simply calling the attackers to weaponize and to use this uh, discrepancy for their advantage. Now, what do you say uh, to, I've heard uh, the argument made that um, if people are allowed to hack back, that they could use hacking back to, uh, to go after their competitors. It's a definitely good point, and it's a real point, and it's a real danger. And that's exactly the same reason why you're not allowed to go into your neighbor's house and stage a breaking into your own house. But again, the line really is about what are the techniques that you can apply, not about the physical location of where you're applying them. If I can run forensics on my system so I can gain attribution and then pass on that information to the FBI or pass that information, in my case, to the Israeli police so that they can take it from here and prosecute the offender under criminal law, it doesn't make much sense that I can't run forensic tools in a third-party system or in the attacker's own system so long as I don't use the forensics to gather competitive intelligence. So we're discussing the limits of the technique. We're not discussing the geographical location. Uh, Currently, the law doesn't allow for that. Currently, the law is more concerned about where I'm running my provisioning system than what the provisioning system is running. So I I suppose, uh, I mean, what did you say a fair analogy would be that uh, if I had put a a homing beacon on my television and my neighbor stole my television and uh, the way cyber law is written, I wouldn't be allowed to use that homing beacon to figure out which of my neighbors stole my television. That's a definite possibility, yes. Oddly enough, that's, that's, that's a definite possibility. Now, consider a more apt case. That's uh, the case of uh, banks using die packs. The reason banks use die packs is uh, threefold. First of all, they use it to render the money useless. Second of all, they use it to deter bank robbers. And third, they use it so that if the banker activates the die pack, he gets stained and is identifiable. So long as you're not using dynamite to detonate a die pack, Nobody's going to entertain a claim for damages from a bank robber that his pants were stained or that he sustained some uh, discoloration of the skin while he was robbing a bank. Oddly enough, in cybersecurity law, if I install a die pack and that die pack causes damages to a system, then I'm liable for damages. That's a bit strange. That's Jonathan Braverman from Symmetria. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, 
John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.